From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. This season of Innovators on Tap is sponsored by Husco International, a fast-growing, community-oriented company specializing in high-performance hydraulic and electromechanical components. With over 70 years of experience designing and manufacturing these components, Husco takes pride in collaborating with customers to develop innovative solutions. Husco has U.S. locations in Wisconsin and Iowa and global locations in England, Germany, China, and India. A privately owned company that offers more than just a job, a career at Husco is an entrepreneurial experience full of incredible opportunities for growth, creativity, and innovation. Go to husco.com to begin your next adventure and put the lessons you've learned from the podcast to work. For many businesses that want to innovate, the biggest challenge is not coming up with a new idea, but figuring out how to get consumers to embrace that idea. We dealt with this problem often at Cree, including when we tried to get customers to switch from incandescent light to LED. The key to driving change is to first understand how humans behave. I recently had a chance to talk with Julie Miller, who is a behavioral scientist a researcher at Dan Ariely's Center for Advanced Hindsight, and an innovation partner at Wake Innovates. Julie has been using her knowledge of human behavior to help companies connect with their customers, teach organizations to become more innovative, and recognize that we rely way too much on asking people when instead we should be watching people and testing things. We discuss how behavioral science is more than a simple user experience why incremental improvement may actually be more risky than innovation, and the importance of workplace culture to create the right environment and context for employees to pursue new ideas. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, Julie, welcome, and thanks for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So I know that you have a PhD in clinical psychology, and you've had a long career in behavioral science. And I think most recently, you've you've done some work with Dan Ariely at Duke. And personally, I'm a big fan of his work, including the book Predictably Irrational, which I've given away many copies because for me, it was just it was just a really different way to start to think about why things happen than I think my rational brain had tried to do in the past. But I'm not sure our audience probably really understands this concept of behavioral science. So maybe you can give us a sense for how would you describe what it is and how you apply it to real problems? So I think that's a great question and one that we tend to get fairly often. Behavioral science really is a way to study human decision-making, human behavior, um, and really be able to kind of take that information and then design things for the world that maximize the different ways that people make either errors in their thinking or shortcuts in their thinking, as opposed to trying to fight against those things. So just as like taking the understanding of why we do what we do and building it into systems and products and processes so that we're not constantly fighting against human nature. 
So I know that you're an innovation partner at Wake Innovates, which I think is designed to help really foster innovation through Wake County. And it has a bunch of different programs. And one of the core principles of the organization that we found on the website is innovation is a tricky term. So I spent an entire chapter in my book trying to explain my definition of innovation. And so I'd love to hear what's yours. It, it's quite interesting because I feel like I'm on an innovation team in government. And I would say that a fair amount of my work actually is more what I would view as like process improvement, which I think is fundamentally different from innovation because I think innovation is more about unique, novel, new outside of the box, different ideas. And what I was finding when I first started in my role in particular was that people, especially in government, would conflate the two and put them all in one. And I think it was because a lot of the programs that were being run were more process improvement programs than innovation programs. Not that there's anything wrong with process improvement, and we definitely need it, but I think what it also did was kind of sell government workers short by saying like that they're incapable of innovation, which I don't think is true. What's interesting is I think along that line, you had said somewhere that you found that organizations seem naturally more comfortable with process improvement. And I think you said, I've no doubt that can have major benefits, but you can also end up spending more time reworking the process than you ever get in return. You said, how is that less risky than innovation and the rapid testing of new ideas? It seems riskier, yet neither has a guaranteed benefit and a failure in a process improvement can even take longer to even figure out that it's gone wrong. So in my world, most people I talk to certainly see innovation as more risky than improvement. But your argument is it's the opposite. And so I'm curious, why do we get stuck with that? What are we missing? So I think part of the reason that we get stuck with that is because of some behavioral biases and cognitive biases that lead us to overlook the current state and the detriment of the current state. And some things with like omission bias, where it's easier if things go wrong, people prefer that they go wrong because they did nothing than they did something. So I think it's partly that. And I think because of the, the nature of process improvement, it's a little bit easier to understand. It's more, has more clear benchmarks oftentimes. Um, and it's a more, process improvement tends to be a more um, familiar system. So I think people are just more comfortable with it and they feel like, oh, it's going to work, right? Like there's not really this kind of like, is it going to be great or not that comes along with innovation, right? You're not expecting like a grand slam. The expectations are a little bit lower and more known. So you feel like, well, ultimately it might take a while and we may only have a 4% increase, but we are pretty guaranteed we're going to have a 4% increase. Whereas on the other side, uh, you can have a much greater improvement, but you're like, but what if we have no improvement? And so I think that feels scary to people. But largely for me, um, it's a little bit different because I come from a research background. So for me, all research and all experimentation is a win, right? No matter the outcome. Um, but that's a little bit, that's a little bit hard for some mindsets, I think. So I know you also spend a lot of time working with companies to help them utilize behavioral science in their business, in addition to maybe some more traditional things that I think you you call them user experience, and I would say they're customer-centric experiences, right? And I think you comment at one point that giants like Apple, Google, Netflix, and even Disney, they know the difference. And what they've done is they have figured out how to bring both the user experience and behavioral science expertise into house, and that's why they dominate. So 
Clearly, these have been very successful companies, but it's the first time I've ever heard someone connect those dots that way. So why do you think this combination is necessary and what allows them to embrace it and so many other companies to just not get it? What makes it so successful is that a lot of times user experience or customer experience is focused on what is, how can we maximize the use of our service or product? And behavioral science is looking at what is the behavior you want people to do and how do you maximize that? And sometimes that is through the product, but they have different ultimate goals. So like if you're thinking about, for example, like a weight loss app, you can, as a UX person in particular, design a great experience, even use some of the sort of low-hanging fruit of behavioral science with reducing friction and things like that to make a nice experience. However, potentially what you're doing is building an application that people like to use. But the real reason for why you sign up for a weight loss application is to lose weight. So it doesn't really matter if it's an amazing experience if you don't lose weight. So behavioral scientists would look at that and say, okay, you want people to lose weight. What are the things that lead you to lose weight? And then how can you build those into your application? Not just how can you make it a enjoyable experience or a good process. It's much more focused on what is the end behavior that you want to see. And I will say what I have found in terms of doing consulting is that oftentimes UX people think they're doing behavioral science. I think the problem is that um, there's far more um, context and complexity to behavioral science than books like Nudge and even like Dan's books would lead you to believe. So what oftentimes happens is people like, well, could you write up for me a guide that's like how I can take best practices for behavioral science and build them into my technology? And I'm like, if I wrote a book on behavioral science, I think ultimately it would have to just be called It Depends because it just depends on so many factors and people really, really want it to be simple. And I think some of the early work in behavioral economics made it seem very simple, right? Like you're going to do this and that's going to work, but you're going to get very tiny increases and it's going to backfire for other groups of people. So ultimately, I think we're at a point now where people have like kind of adopted, they've read enough and they think it should just be like a list of guidelines, but it ends up being so much more complicated, which is why I think that the marriage of working UX and behavioral science together on teams is so, so valuable. Do you wonder sometimes if part of the challenge when people are thinking about user experience is that they think about the user experience, but they imagine themselves as the user? How do we help people put themselves in someone else's shoes? Is there a trick or an idea or something you try that gets people's head around that? This is where self-awareness helps, bringing them more into awareness about what kinds of cognitive biases exist and what you're likely to fall into. And even myself saying to people sometimes like, oh yeah, I would have thought it would have turned out like this if we did this, but actually it's like this. And that's why you need to do research and just making it more human to like self-experiment and find out places where you were wrong because people rely so heavily on intuition and a lot of times intuition is wrong. And so just teaching them how to like do mini experiments on themselves, we rely way too heavily on asking people instead of watching people and testing things. So like teaching them how to like test stuff out, 
and then I think part of that um, also is just like learning more about the psychology of people helps because it helps you take another person's point of view when you just learn how people tend to function. Yeah, you know, we used to say that, uh, you know, what we wanted to do with an innovation is that, that it had to be something new. We wanted to solve a customer problem and we wanted it to create value for them from their perspective, not from our perspective. And what I always used to say is, Someone's not going to give you money or trade value with you unless they believe it is making their life better in some way that they care about. And I think so often what I find, and you know, we invented lots of products that weren't innovative, is that we thought they were really cool. Like, hey, they did this really cool thing. But if you can't connect the dot to why it makes their life better, it doesn't matter. And, and probably the biggest example or the easiest to understand is the LED light bulb. When we first invented it, we were so excited that we were going to save people energy and that it was going to last forever. Yet we found out in doing some research that they actually don't really care about saving energy. And it really wasn't a big problem to change them once a year. And so one day we were sitting around and the aha was, well, it actually saves them money. You know, people actually already care about saving money. So we literally reworked the entire messaging around LED lighting to be as simple as it saves you money. If you want to throw your money away, go ahead. But if you don't, you should try these things. And it, the difference when we made that change is phenomenal. And I don't know that we understood that's behavioral science, but I think that's what we kind of figured out along the way. But it was a real aha and something that I think most companies, especially ones filled with engineers or marketers who like features, they forget that what customers actually buy are benefits. And emotions. They buy benefits and emotions. Yeah. So how do you help someone figure out what those emotions are? For the most part, in behavioral science, you just want people to do the right behaviors. And the reasons don't matter so much. So you are just trying to get people to do the thing that they are saying they want to do. But you, you don't really care why they do it. Somewhat what you need to do or what I do is help companies get over that hump a little bit and realize that they don't have to convince people that they need to use AI because it works amazingly. They need to make it feel the right feeling for the person using it. You know, the things that drive behavior, there's only so many of them, regardless of what the behavior is. So we really kind of start with this like assessment of like, what are, what's the behavior what are the barriers and cognitive biases that are getting in the way? And then how do we typically tackle those biases? And then that's where the creative part comes in. Because you have to think of like, how do we take these uh, interventions designed for one behavior and translate it into this other one? Well, that's a great idea. Um, we're going to switch gears now. In my experience, one of the things I really believe is that innovation or success at innovation has more to do with the mindset and the culture of the people in the organization than it does any kind of tools you can give them. But I know that you do a lot of work really going into companies or organizations and, and running workshops to help them think through this. So I'm curious, do you think coming in and trying to help an organization that might not have the right mindset or culture, how effective do you think that is? Or do you think it's got to really you really have to win the hearts and the minds of the people in the organization and let them go do it? That's a good question. I, I think initially, when I first started in innovation a couple of years ago, I definitely had more of the belief that we needed to 
get like the leadership to really embrace it and be very public and vocal. And I was like, that's what's going to work. And, you know, that's not necessarily, even from a behavioral point of view, what's going to motivate people to do things. So what I, I shifted to doing um, was more of kind of grassroots campaign, which was trying to have informal like innovation clubs, trying to identify people that felt either underutilized in their current role or that they've had good ideas that have been shot down in the past and starting to band together groups of people that fell in that category and found that there were a decent number of them and they were they were not like disgruntled for no reason. It, it had been like they had really good ideas that never came to fruition. And so these ideas are just sitting on a shelf. And so because of this sort of, um, in a, my location within the organization, we were a, a lot of times able to offer them sort of the ability to test out these things that they've always wanted to test. And, and, and not just that, but grow this kind of community of support for each other. Somebody one day was like, so you're building more of like a resistance then? And I was like, yes, but we're not going to call it a resistance. But I think it kind of, in some ways, has to come from that way. Like top-down is great, but essentially, um, if you're asking people to really take on work and do the work, they have to kind of be also indicating that they have a drive themselves to do it and not just that it's like mandated from above to do it. So I feel like it's, it's more successful in that way than sort of the other approach was. Yeah, we used to call it the pirate ship. And you wanted people who wanted to be on the pirate ship. It was actually a great test because then they kind of started with an attitude at least that you could build upon. But let me test that out a little further. So what happens when you get this group that's making progress and they got this idea and you finally, you know, you allow them to test it and kind of build some momentum and they run into and for the sake of this, we'll say middle management, someone who's got a set of goals that they have to hit. And if they don't hit them, they get yelled at, in trouble, get demoted, whatever. They don't get a raise. So they have all these metrics that are designed to keep them on track. And innovation is, in, is inherently going to take you off track. And as you said earlier, right, there's going to be a risk. And there's a chance that it could be better than a 4% return. But it could also be zero. And honestly, sometimes innovation's negative before it's positive at all. What do you do when teams come to you and say, now what do I do? I'm stuck because I don't know how to get that person above me to take that risk because it's not in their best interest. I think there's a few things and there's a few different layers. One was continuing to try to push for it at an organizational level, even if it, even if it didn't require people at a high level constantly working in innovation. One thing that we managed to do was kind of shift our um, county like performance reviews where everyone now has some responsibility for innovative changes. So I think that part, even if it's not um, the thing that drives behavior, offers a little bit of overhead coverage to people doing innovation. Um, the other part of that, while I would love to go and just do all of the things that I think are amazing, innovative ideas that people have come up with, uh, I also recognize that some of those have to be done like in time. So it's forced me to be more patient than I like. So it's like for each, for individual people, you kind of have to figure out what is the right amount to push them so that they're not doing nothing, but it's not too much and understand they might be somewhat annoyed with you for a short period of time. But as long as there's enough benefit, it pays off. 
things I've also found to be helpful, which is um, cross-discipline or cross-municipal projects, because then people don't want to be left out. So if you're like, all the other areas are doing this thing, then it helps to, you know, drive a little bit of social norms and get people on board. Um, so I do use a lot of the behavioral science, not tricks, but behavioral science principles to try to drive through some of those things. Um, or we do a lot of um, pilot testing. So we're like, maybe you can't do the full thing right now. What part can we break off of this that can show some positive movement, can give a little bit of street cred, can make the people, powers who, that be, feel comfortable, and then we break off that piece and run it, and then people just seem to get more comfortable. And they see the success, and they it's all their success, right? We don't, as an innovation program, own the success. We let the the people driving it own the success. And then they feel like that they for, have forgotten by like a few months in that they ever resisted it, right? They're like, oh, this thing's great. We've gotten publicity. People love it. And then they just have forgotten that they were opposed. If you're enjoying this episode and want to learn more about how you can discover the mindset to pursue the impossible, please check out my new book, The Innovator's Spirit where I explain the beliefs that lead to the behaviors that make innovation possible. It is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Now, let's get back to the show. I wanna get into a series of questions that really now get into your mindset and how you view certain aspects of both innovation and entrepreneurship. So my first question is, do you think your success has come more from avoiding failure or embracing failure? I would say definitely embracing failure. So I would say even over the past, I don't know, five years, my uh, typical work week and my uh, tasks that I'm doing has shifted completely, right? So I was doing more um, research, more traditional clinical psych research in like health, pain management, things like that. And ultimately, I realized that that just wasn't what I wanted to do. And I was like, you know, these principles are helpful, but they're helping the like 10 people here at this place and not everybody else. And and there was just a lot of things that I was unhappy about. And I happened to be, um, this is a very weird story, but I happened to be playing Pokemon Go with my children over in Durham. And I saw the sign that said the Center for Advanced Hindsight. And at the time, I did not know what it was, but I was like, that's an amazing name. What is that thing? I looked it up and saw that it was Dan's lab and what he was doing and was like, I need to go there, right? So I did not have any experience in behavioral economics as a field at that point, but I emailed Dan up and Dan's never in town really. So uh, he's like, well, I can meet you tomorrow night at 10 p.m. after this workshop we're doing. Can you come? And I was like, all right. So I went and met him at 10 p.m. and then started working there like two weeks later and then learned a just a ridiculous amount of information about behavioral science and took on this entirely new approach and new field. And then while I was there, I also became interested in working with startups and technology. And it was not a field I had a lot of experience in before, but I was like, this is just like everything else. It's just another medium for shaping behavior and helping people get what they want out of life. And so I became very interested in that field and started working a lot with um, technology and how can you build behavioral science and human nature into products instead of fighting against them all the time. 
And then um, when I started in innovation, again, it was like another big shift. Like I was a behavioral scientist and I took an innovation job. Um, but I was like, you know, I think that my kind of approach to how I tackle things and how I get up to speed on things and and just like learning new things has kind of driven me through all of these different steps. But clearly they were like, there was failure all over the place. Any one of them could have gone horribly wrong, but luckily that has not been the case. You know, I don't have a degree in psychology or behavioral science, but I am pretty sure just given the 27 plus years I was at Cree that mostly building a company is a behavioral <laughs> science problem. At the end of the day, that's really what it is. And that all the other things come together. But if you get that right, it works. And if you don't, it doesn't. So my next question is, if you're going to pursue innovation, what do you think is more important? The brutal truths or psychological safety? That is a good question. I actually think I might have to go with in between. I think there's benefit to both where I think you have to be honest about the state of affairs, which I think also overcomes what we mentioned earlier in terms of like denying about how bad things currently are. Um, because a lot, of a lot of places will purposefully not ask questions that they know will give them answers they don't want to hear and things like that. Um, However, I think the flip side of that is psychological safety is required for you to get to the point to be willing to ask those hard questions that you don't want to know the answers to and be able to realize like as a team that you can overcome any of those things. So I think without that, the psychological safety part, it's really impossible for the truths to be beneficial. They end up just seeming negative. When you are confronted with a problem, are you more likely to think outside the box build a better box, or set the box on fire? This one makes me laugh because I I generally have thought of myself as relatively like outside of the box, but not too extreme, especially in compared to like working with Dan Ariely, right? So when you work with Dan, like you're definitely on the more like moderate side. However, when you go to government, I think a lot of people there would think I'm on the very extreme side, um, which I don't think is, I don't think I am. But I think my best one probably is that I would probably say I am outside of the box, but I like to create multiple other boxes, new boxes, and then test them to see which one is the best because I am inherently a researcher. Got it. So when you're evaluating talent, whether to help someone build a team or for your own team, what do you think is most important to their future success? I think the most important qualities are things like insatiable curiosity and desire to learn new things. In innovation, I think it also helps quite a lot to have not a thick skin, but like feel like it's okay for people to be slightly annoyed at you sometimes if it's for good reason. Because um, you have to have a little bit of a rebellious streak to, in some ways. And then I would say one that I think is very often overlooked is self-awareness. Because I think that um, without self-awareness, it's extremely hard to identify like where your own strengths and weaknesses are, and then also where other people's strengths and weaknesses are, and know like the best way to get your innovative idea put into place. So I think self-awareness and just being able to like, you know, say, well, I'm not so good at this part, but I can learn it, and then be like, you actually can learn it, then that's really um, tremendously beneficial. So you're sitting down and you have two candidates. One of them has just an incredible resume and skill set. It's all the things that you need to technically do the job. But 
you're not as sure that they're wired the right way. You know, maybe they don't have some of these other qualities you mentioned. And then you have another candidate that's kind of, wow, that, that person thinks the way I want them to do, but they're kind of unqualified, maybe like your data science original job, right? Like I think about it the right way, but I don't have some of the skills. Which one do you pick? I would go mindset every day because I feel like the skills, number one, are teachable, but number two, are also changing so rapidly, especially in technology, that if you hire for skills, that's how you end up being in an organization that's like 10 and 20 years behind because you've hired people who knew how to do one thing, but can't learn how to do anything else. That's a great answer. So is your personal decision bias to limit your downside or to maximize your upside? So I would say maximize upside is generally my approach. However, I feel like that's a little bit misleading because I feel like I'm also limiting downside because as a behavioral scientist in particular, I'm always building off of the work of other people. So I feel like um, most of the things that I either push for behavioral science-wise or innovation-wise, while I like to do novel, new, great ideas, I feel like that there's also like kernels that have come from other places. And so I think it's kind of like you take the best practices and then you make new amazing things from those best practices. So I think it kind of ends up solving both. But I would say maximize upside would be my tendency. Julie, it has been incredible having you on the show. Your insights, are, I just cannot wait for our audience to hear them. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been super fun. Thanks to Julie for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing some lessons from her career in behavioral science, including her advice that skills are teachable, but are also changing rapidly. If you only hire for skills, that's how you end up in an organization that's 10 to 20 years behind. We want to thank all of you who have embraced the show and helped us grow our audience so far, including our sponsor, Husco International. While we are proud of our success, We're just getting started and hope that you will tell your friends about the show. We would also really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com, including transcripts, articles, and an option to sign up for the Innovation Alley newsletter. Thanks for joining us on this journey, and let's go change the world.